came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 18th of July 2019 and we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that yes Virginia, climate change is real and it's happening to the planet you're on at this very moment. See what you can do to help. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And today we continue our second of an extended three-part interview with exobiologist Professor Jonty Horner, who in our previous episode told us about the myths of Jupiter, comet impacts, and panspermia. In today's episode, we hear about not contaminating space with our earthly bacteria as we explore the cosmos with robotic spacecraft, the history of exoplanet discovery, the different techniques used to discover exoplanets, and fingerprinting exoplanet atmospheres, and how he is in a team working with NASA to confirm TESS's exoplanet discoveries with the new Minerva Australis Telescope Facility at the University of Southern Queensland. Now, that segment would normally be followed by Ian Astroblog Musgrave, but We don't have our host Ian with us for this episode because he's currently in Hawaii at the International Congress of Toxicology. So I've cranked up Stellarium, or Stellarium, and we'll see what's up in the sky for the northern and southern hemispheres for the next two weeks. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. So let's cross up to sunny Queensland now to speak with Jonty. And here, Exobiology, Part 2. And we're going to take it up to where we finished off last episode, where we were talking about exploring Mars. Go to Mars, see what you can see. Even if you don't find life, you'll learn a huge amount about the red planet. You'll learn its history, you'll learn how it got to be what it is today. But a lot of the missions that we're sending there are still really driven by that question of is there life on Mars? Fantastic. And I was encouraged by NASA crashing Cassini into Saturn rather than possibly contaminating some of those other parts of space. Yeah, this is a really big deal when you come to space missions. It's something called planetary protection. And to some degree, it's probably being way overcautious. It's very expensive, but essentially happens is with any mission that's launched certainly beyond the Earth's immediate environment, they need to do a risk assessment of 
what level of cleanliness they need to provide, what level of sterilization they need to provide for the spacecraft, depending on where they're going. And the more likely we think that the place they're going could have the conditions for life, the more steps have to be taken for things to be sterilized. And the ultimate example of this, of course, is Mars. The last thing you want to do is send a mission to Mars that finds definitive evidence of life. And then you have the question of, hang on, did we take it with us? You know, you don't want that risk. And so what this has led to, fairly extreme measures that get taken, anywhere where we think there is a possibility of the conditions for life. And around Saturn, one of the big discoveries that Cassini made was that the moon Enceladus has a subsurface ocean that is nutrient-rich. And therefore, there could be life there. In addition to Saturn's moon Titan, which has oceans on its surface, not oceans of water, but oceans of methane and ethane, another place where we think there could possibly be life. With that there, the last thing we want to do is leave a spacecraft that could have Earth lurky on it, that could have bacteria from Earth on it, floating around Saturn where it could eventually collide with one of those objects. So to make sure that everything was safe, when Cassini came to the end of its mission, it was flung into Saturn's cloud tops to burn up harmlessly, to sterilise, to remove any risk of contamination. And I do think that's very, very important. You're a great storyteller, Jonty, and it reminds me, you mentioned AI-enabled spacecraft that we may have in the near future. Even Voyager 1 that we sent out in 1977, 40 years ago now, it told the story of humanity itself. So maybe our future spacecraft will also be great storytellers. We hope so. I mean, it's quite nice in a way if you think of all the problems that humanity faces and the fact that the great majority of species that have lived on our planet no longer live on our planet. That we may have a, a clock, a return to sender time, essentially. That we have put things like Voyager 2 into the cosmos. So even if humanity does come to the end of its time, we will have evidence out there that our story will carry on. And to some degree, that'll happen anyway. We've been broadcasting our existence to space since the 1930s or 40s, depending on which TV broadcast you think <laughs> was powerful enough, either the Berlin Olympics or the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. But that information is spreading out into space, so scarily it means that people on nearby planets can now watch Big Brother, which is maybe not such a good thing. But it means that our memory will linger on, that there will always be some part of the cosmos that can tune into Big Brother or Love Island or whatever, and that will just expand outward into space at distance of one light year per year, essentially, those signals. Fantastic. Well, that search is on, and that brings us to exoplanets. We were all sad when Kepler finally ran out of power, but then Tess stepped up and has already proven to be a very effective exoplanet hunter. And now we have over 4,000 exoplanets confirmed since we first started to discover exoplanets. Can you tell us how we first discovered them? And wasn't that exciting just a couple of years ago when water vapour was detected in the atmosphere of 51 Pegasi B? How did they do that? And... Well, just could you give us an idea of the various techniques that planet hunters use to find exoplanets around distant stars, Jonty? I can, and it's quite a long story to get to where we are today. I mean, in a lot of ways, the main advances have come in the last 30 years, but they've been built on a couple of hundred years of hard thought and hard science. If I take you back to the 1800s, 
people were using telescopes that were powerful enough that they could start to measure accurately the positions of nearby stars against the background stars and watch them move. Stars move through the cosmos, it's just that they do it so slowly we can't see it with the naked eye. The constellations over periods of thousands of years will disappear as the stars move in different directions. And that motion is called proper motion. In the 1800s, people started measuring that proper motion over time. For the nearest stars, because they're nearby, even if they're moving at the same speed, they're close by, so the speed across the sky is amplified. It's like when you're driving along a road, the bushes by the road go by very quickly, but the hills in the distance barely move. You're still moving at the same speed relative to the hills as you are with the bushes, but the things that are nearby move across your field of view more quickly. In the mid-1800s, Friedrich Bessel realized that the star Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, wasn't moving across the sky in a straight line, but instead it was following a wavy kind of line. It was sometimes moving a bit to the left, sometimes moving a bit to the right, all as it proceeded across the sky. And what he realized was that this must be the sign that there is something moving along with Sirius, moving in essentially a celestial stately dance, pulling the star back and forth. That became known as Sirius B, the pup, where Sirius is a dog star, and it was the discovery of the first ever white dwarf. It's an object the size of the Earth, but the mass of the Sun, something that remains from a companion star to Sirius that was actually the bigger of the two, that lived its life, it lived fast and died young, shed its outer layers and left behind a glowing ember, tiny, hard to spot, but still with the mass of the Sun. And that object was found indirectly. It was found as a result of its gravitational pull on Sirius A, the bright star. At around the same time, the planet Neptune was discovered in much the same way. Neptune wasn't discovered by somebody pointing a telescope at the sky and saying, ooh, look. Well, the final observation was. But what preceded that was the prediction that there was another planet that we hadn't found yet in the solar system. A planet that was pulling Uranus back and forth, moving it out of the orbit we'd expect. And those perturbations to Uranus's motion were the telltale that Neptune was there. So the eighth planet in the solar system and the first white dwarf star were both essentially discovered indirectly. We observed their effect on something, Uranus or Sirius, and inferred the presence of the planet. And that's kind of seeding the story for how we find planets around other stars. If I bring you forward to the 1930s, there was a guy called Edwin van der Kamp who worked at an observatory in the US and was convinced that one of the solar system's nearest neighbours, Barnard Star, had two Jupiter-mass planets. And he found them, what he thought were planets, in the same way that Bestel found Sirius B. He observed Barnard Star's proper motion, and Barnard Star has the largest proper motion of any known star across the sky. It's both very close by and moving very quickly. And when he was observing this dull little glowing red ember, he found it was rocking back and forth as it moved across the sky. What could that be? Well, the wobble was too small to be another star moving along with it. And in all honesty, if there was another star there, we'd have found it. So he said, I found planets. To make a wobble like this, we need two planets, each about the mass of Jupiter, to be pulling Barnard's star back and forth. Everybody was quite excited about this. I mean, finding planets in the 1930s, very, very cool. But astronomers at no other observatory could replicate his observations. He's seeing this star wobbling back and forward. Everybody else sees it moving in a straight line. Something weird was going on. He actually went to his grave convinced that he'd found planets and that he was not being listened to well enough by the community. But it turned out he'd discovered something else. He'd discovered the cleaner. 
what was happening was that he was using a refracting telescope, telescope with just lenses and no mirrors. And when light passes through a lens, its path is bent, and that's how the telescope works, allowing it to focus light. But light of different colours is bent by slightly different amounts. This is why a prism works to break up the light of the sun into its component colours. When you're trying to use a lens telescope to observe the nice sky, though, that slight difference in how red and blue light is bent by the lens leads to something called chromatic aberration. And you can put more lenses in to try and correct for it, but it's one of the problems of telescopes that have a lot of lenses in them, essentially. Yep. What was happening was that the main lens of the telescope at the front, the big one that gathered the light, over the period of a year or two was gradually getting dirty. You know, dust accumulates, grot accumulates on it. And that layer of grime was altering the optical properties of the lens, causing the amount of chromatic aberration to change very slightly. Most of the stars in the field of view with Barnard's star are bright stars intrinsically that are far away. And typically the brightest stars are blue stars and yellowish stars, but mainly blue and white stars. Barnard's star is very nearby, very dull, very red. And so it was far more victim to this chromatic aberration than were the other stars. So its position was appearing to move with respect to the others because of the change in the optics of the telescope. Every few years, the cleaner came along, cleaned the gram off the lens, and it would reset how it was before, and Barnard's star would appear to jump <laughs> back to its true location. Yep. So you have this wobble caused by cleaning the telescope, essentially. And it was one of those really interesting missteps that shows us a lot about how science proceeds. And yeah, it was sad for Van der Kamp, he didn't find his planet. But it does give you this wonderful story, wonderful narrative. We then come forward to the 1980s, and this was when we got our first hints that we weren't alone in the planetary sense. A spacecraft called IROS was launched, the infrared astronomical satellite. And it was going up above the atmosphere to observe the sky infrared wavelengths that can't make it to the ground that the atmosphere blocks. So the first thing they do with this satellite is point it at some of the brightest stars in the sky that we've studied really well, where they expect that they can predict what the telescope should see, how much light it would receive. And there was a little bit of a shock, to put it mildly, that a certain few of the brightest stars in the sky were brighter in infrared than they should be, than they were expected to be. They had what became known as an infrared excess. They were giving off more light at those wavelengths than was expected, essentially. Yep. Now, the first thing people thought of is, oh, no, is our spacecraft broken? I mean, that would be a bad thing. But it was quickly realized that that infrared excess was the signature of a dusty disk of material around those stars. Those stars that are young, formed in the relatively recent past, are surrounded by dust. What that dust does is it absorbs the light from the star the dust heats up and then it re-radiates that light in the infrared, meaning that when you see the dust and the star together, you get an excessive infrared radiation over what you'd get just from the star. And that was an indication that dust and debris around stars is relatively common. For us to see it around these many stars, these young objects, that suggests that dust and debris are common, and therefore the things that form planets, the planet formation process, might be common around other stars as well. In the late 1980s, 1988 and 1989, two separate groups of observers, one led by Campbell, one led by Latham, found objects around the star HD 116250, I think, yep. 116205 maybe, and Gamma Cephei A. And these two objects at the time, they were very cautious, they said, we think we found brown dwarfs, we think we found objects that are too big to be planets, but too small to be stars. And so the discoveries didn't get much coverage. They were cool oddities but nothing special. In fact as we look back now 
those objects, it turns out, were planets. So they were technically the first planets we found around other stars back in the late 80s. Wow. They just fly under the radar because they weren't described as such at the time. They didn't get the press coverage. So people don't really know about them. And it's not until 1992 that we found the first planets that were announced as planets. And these were odd in their own way. But as a prelude to them, also in 1992, there was a huge announcement of the first planet around another star. A planet around a pulsar. Now, a pulsar is a dead husk, a remnant of a star that was once much more massive than the sun, that lived its life, died in a supernova explosion, and left a core that's only a few kilometers across. Comparable in size maybe to Brisbane or Sydney, but with a mass comparable to or bigger than the sun. That's a neutron star, and they spin incredibly quickly because they've conserved the angular momentum from their parent star, but shrunk down hugely, so they've spun up a lot. Like the dancers spinning with their arms apart, and bringing their arms in will spin quicker, the same kind of thing. They also have immense magnetic fields, which are not necessarily aligned with their spin axis, just like the Earth's magnetic field, the Earth's magnetic pole isn't the same place as its spin pole, the two are in different places. Those magnetic fields create hot spots on the surface of the neutron star that beam radio waves out into space, and as the star spins round, those beams sweep like beams of lighthouse, and if we're lined up just right, we see the star flashing in the radio, ticking like a clock. And these observers were looking at a pulsar, and they found that sometimes the ticks of this incredibly accurate clock arrived a little bit early, sometimes a little bit late, and then a little bit early again. And it looks like sometimes the ticks are having to travel a bit further, so they arrive late. They're travelling from a source that's further away, they take longer to reach us. At other times, they're travelling from a source that's more close by, they take less time to reach us because they've got less far to travel, and so on. So the implication is, well, there must be something pulling the star around. Just as with Sirius, there had to be an unseen companion pulling it around. They did the calculations, and it turned out that this looked like a planet. Big announcement. This is great. And when it was announced at the conference and the questions afterwards, someone kind of came up to the speaker and said, look, you know, it seems a little bit odd. You might want to just go away and just double check. There's something a bit strange about this. So he went away, he redid his calculations, looked at his computer code, and he found a very small bug in the code, a small typo, that meant that he wasn't accounting for the motion of the Earth around the sun correctly. So in other words, he had found a planet, but he'd found the one he was stood on. He (laughs) detected the effect of the Earth moving around the sun, essentially, and not fully cancelled that out. And that highlights how hard this is more than anything else. But it's a story with great redemption. He went to the next conference, announced what had happened, got a standing ovation, I got it wrong. But then he went on to find planets around a different pulsar that really are there. And they were the first planets we found that were announced as planets back in 1992. But again, they didn't get quite as much attention as maybe you'd have expected because they're around a star that is totally alien to us. It's not the kind of place you'd look for life elsewhere. The first planet around a sun-like star that was announced as a planet around a sun-like star finally came along in 1995 with the discovery of 51 Pegasi B. And this was found by the radial velocity technique, measuring the wobble of the star by breaking its light down into its component colours. If you take the light from the sun, if you take the light from any star and pass it through a prism or a spectrograph, you break it into all its component colours and you get laced across it a series of dark lines we call the Fraunhofer absorption lines. And they are the chemical fingerprint of all of the gases that are in the outer atmosphere of that star. They are absorption lines because a gas absorbs light at a particular colour. And each set of lines is found at a very specific colour, which we can predict. We see this in the lab. Now, if a star's moving towards us, 
the light from that cell will be slightly blue shifted, shifted to the blue, yep. which means the locations of those lines will also be moved a little bit bluer than we'd expect. If it's moving away from us, the light will be a little bit red shifted. In other words, the lines are shifted a little bit to the red. Yep. If you've got a star that has a planet going around it, they actually move around their common center of gravity. The star doesn't stay still. It's very much like if you're dancing a waltz with a partner. You don't stay still with your partner going around you. You both go around your common center of gravity in the middle. So if a star has a planet, that star will rock back and forth along our line of sight as the planet moves around in a bigger orbit. That means that sometimes the light from the star will be slightly shifted to the blue as it comes towards us. Yep. Sometimes it will be slightly shifted to the red as it moves away. And that's the bare bones of the radial velocity technique. And by the mid-90s, teams had been observing sunlight stars using spectrographs for a few years, trying to pick up evidence of planets around them using this technique. But they'd not really paid much attention to their data because they knew that the resolution of the spectrographs they had meant that the only planet in the solar system that they could detect if it was around another star would be Jupiter. And Jupiter goes around every 12 years. We didn't expect there to be planets as big as Jupiter closer in. So this was viewed as a long-term game. You observe for a few years, then you look at your data and see what you find. But a couple of observers in Switzerland decided to have a look at the data just to make sure their instrument was working correctly. And they found that this star 51 Pegasi was wobbling back and forwards really quickly, with a period of just a few days with an amplitude that suggested it had a planet the size of Jupiter moving round 120th the distance between the Earth and the Sun from the star, really close in, became known as a hot Jupiter. And it was purely by chance that they decided to check the data to see if, if their instrument was working correctly. Um, they found this, they did a lot of checking because it's unlike anything anybody ever expected. A planet the size of Jupiter that close to its star was just not something anyone had thought of before. They announced their discovery, and then everybody else went away and looked at their data as well. And from one planet, we quickly went to three or four discovered in the next year or so. And that was really the dawn of the exoplanet era, where the discovery of exoplanets really went from being a fiction, being speculation, to being science fact. And for probably the first decade after that of the exoplanet era, that technique, the radial velocity technique, was by far the most successful at finding planets around other stars. Yep. It was... In the middle of the next decade, the middle of the first decade of the 21st century, that it gained a real rival, which is the transit technique. Yep. Now, this is where we start talking about moths flying around lighthouses and get people to try and imagine things like that. If you have a planet going around a star, a lot of those planets going around a lot of those stars will move on orbits that are aligned such that the two don't pass in front of each other in the sky. They just don't line up perfectly. Yep. But for a tiny fraction where the alignment is just right, Every time the planet goes around the star, it will pass directly between us and the star. If we could resolve the star's disk, if we had a big enough telescope to see the star like we see the sun, you'd see a tiny speck blocking part of the star's disk as this planet goes across. But we don't see that. We just see a tiny speck of light in the sky, which is the star that we're observing. But when the planet is in front of the star, when it's between us and the star, it can block a tiny amount of the light from that star because it's blocking a bit of the disk. So by the middle part of the first decade of the 21st century, we finally had astronomical detectors that could measure the brightness of the stars with enough precision to pick up this tiny, tiny dimming. For a planet like Jupiter going around a star like our sun, that planet would block just 1% of the star's light. Totally undetectable with the naked eye. You couldn't pick this up like that. You need incredibly accurate cameras. But if you look at enough stars and planets are common, eventually you'll find a star where the alignment is just right 
And every time the planet goes around its star, you'll get a transit. And that allows us to use the transit method. And the first transit surveys tried to play a numbers game. They looked at wide fields of the night sky, trying to get as many stars into their camera as possible to watch them continuously, essentially looking for those that wink, looking for those that dim and then brighten again. In 2008, Kepler was launched. And that was really the game changer. Kepler was a transit telescope out in space, and it stared at one patch of the night sky about the size of your hand with your fingers extended at arm's length for four years, pretty much continuously without blinking. There were a few downtimes, things like that. In the field of view, it had 150,000 stars that it monitored continuously for four years. Now, if you think one star in 100, let's say, has a planet lined up just right to give transits, well, one star in 100, when you've got 150,000 stars, is still 1,500 stars. Yep. By playing that numbers game, you get a lot of candidates. And that's what Kepler did. It became the most successful planet hunting mission of all time and found just off its own back more than 2,500 confirmed exoplanets and about another 4,000 that we think are there, but you need more work following up to confirm them. And that's why nowadays the transit method is by far the most successful of those that are used. Radio velocity is still in a strong second place. And then there are a few other methods that are, let's say, occasionally used or occasionally successful. We have a handful of planets, probably 10 or 20 nowadays, that have been discovered directly, that have been directly imaged. These are the only planets we've actually seen. Of the remaining 3,900 plus, 4,000 plus, we haven't seen the planet. We've seen a star doing something unexpected and inferred the presence of the planet. But for this small handful, we have images of them. We've seen the planets by the light they reflect from their host star directly. Now, this is incredibly challenging, but it's led to one of the most, I think, beautiful visualizations of what modern astronomy can do in the form of the planetary system around the star HR8799, which is a wonderful name. It's one of these wonderful barcodes that we use all the time. HR8799 has four giant planets, all bigger than Jupiter, probably 10 times Jupiter's mass. It's a young star, so it's very hot, and the planets going around it are still hot and bright. They're still glowing with the heat of their formation. They're still puffed up, which means they reflect more light from their star. You put all that together, and it's the prime place to look for direct imaging of planets. And there's a glorious video out there that you can find on the browser of your choice, on the search engine of your choice that puts together images taken over the last decade or so with one of the world's biggest telescopes that show not only the four planets that we found going around HR8799, but actually show them orbiting the star with time. You can see them moving. We've got a real movie of real planets orbiting another star. And I just think that's breathtaking. It's astonishing. Yeah, I think it's testament to how astronomy's come on so far. It's not the only one of the other techniques that has been used, but it's probably the most evocative and the one that actually gives you a feel that you could reach out and touch these planets, that you could really get to know them. And it's using these techniques that we can learn more about them. Now, if you only see a planet transit its star and you don't have any other information, you can figure out how big it is, its physical diameter. The reason being that the bigger the planet is, the more of the light from its star it will block, so the more the star will dip. So you can work out the relative size of the planet, but you can't say anything about how massive it is or what it's made of. If you do measurements with the radial velocity technique, you can learn how massive the planet is, because a more massive planet will have a stronger gravitational pull, will make the star wobble more. It'll be a bigger wobble. 
that tells you the mass, but it doesn't tell you anything about the physical size of the planet. It could be a ball of cotton wool, or it could be a block of iron. Yep. Both of them with the same mass. If you can do both techniques on the same star, if you can see a star where the planet transits, you know its size, and you can measure the relative velocity wobbles, you get the planet's mass. You put them together and you get its density. And that is when you can really begin disentangling what kind of planet is it. Is it a rocky planet? Is it a gaseous planet? We can go one step further. For those planets that are the biggest that transit their stars really close in, like 51 Pegasi, we are now technologically just able to start disentangling what's in their atmospheres. Yep. At the moment, we can only do this for planets the size of Jupiter, but it's the first step on the way to actually learning about the atmospheres of planets like our own. And it requires you to observe the light from a star, get its spectrum, look at all those spectral lines, the fingerprint of what's in the star. You do that before the planet transits the star, and then you do it during the transit of the planet. When the planet's passing in front of the star, a tiny fraction of the light from the star will pass through the planet's atmosphere and then go on to reach us. And that little bit of light that goes through the planet's atmosphere will pick up absorption lines that are due to the compounds in the planet's atmosphere. They'll pick up the spectral signature of the composition of the planet's atmosphere. Now, this is a very tiny alteration to the star signal. You're talking about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1%. But for these very big planets, we can now do the trick of taking the spectrum of the star before the transit, taking a spectrum during the transit, subtracting one from the other. And if you do it right, you take away the spectrum of the star entirely and you're left with the spectrum of the planet's atmosphere. And it's noisy and it's rough because it's right at the very edge of what we can do scientifically. But that's why we've now been able to detect a number of different molecules in the atmosphere of some of the very biggest planets we found. And like I say, it's a step on the way to being able to study planets like our own in the decades to come. Such an exciting field for astronomers to delve into. That's amazing. Now, you and your teams are also directly involved in this huge hunt for exoplanets. I mentioned in the introduction that you are leading the construction of a Minerva Australis. Can you tell us about the Mount Kent facility you have, where the project's at, what instrumentation is involved, and could you tell us about the research that will be happening there? I can. And Australia actually has a long and storied history in exoplanetary science, so we're not the first cab off the rank by any means. There was an incredibly successful radial velocity program called the Anglo-Australian Planet Search, which was run initially from UNSW, and we're now doing the legacy work for it here at USQ, that from 1997 to 2014 used Australia's biggest telescope, the Anglo-Australian telescope, biggest optical telescope, I should say, to do radial velocity measurements for a couple of hundred stars. And we found a good number of planets that way. What we really need to do, though, is work with international collaborators. Science is not something that has national borders in reality, particularly when it comes to astronomy. A lot of the time here in Australia, it's daylight. We can't see the northern sky because it's below the horizon. So if we want to study the sky, we need to work internationally. And of course, there are these huge American exoplanet observatory missions, Kepler and TESS, that are discovering potential planets by the bucket load. But there's a problem here. When Tess or Kepler find what they think is a planet, there are other things that could cause the same kind of signal. So you need to do follow-up observations to be certain that what you're really seeing is a planet rather than 
an eclipsing binary star that's in the background of your image and is contributing a bit of the light and causing the dip. Yep. All sorts of things like this. So there is a real critical need for ground-based follow-up that can be on sky all night, every night, looking at these stars. Now, that's not something you can do with the biggest telescopes in the world because every astronomer on the planet wants to get their hand on them. And they want to do cosmology, they want to look at galaxies, they want to look at stars. So to be able to get one of those telescopes and say, I'm going to use this for the next six months to look at one star, would just get laughed out of town. It's not going to happen. And so that's why we at USQ, myself and my colleague, Professor Rob Wittenmeyer, who's the lead on the project, came up with this idea of building a dedicated array of telescopes to do that follow-up work at a regional Australian university. I think this is such a lovely story. We have our own observatory called Mount Kent Observatory, which is about 45 minutes drive from USQ. And it's a research facility. It's not a public observatory where you can just go and look through the telescopes. It's a real research observatory here in Queensland. Yep. And we put in a grant to the Australian Research Council to take advantage of the fact that we've now reached a time with technology where you can buy big telescopes off the shelf. So we've had the Model T Ford revolution of astronomical telescopes, essentially. And we've been able to buy telescopes with 70 centimetre mirrors, so that's really big pieces of kit, research-grade telescopes for off-the-shelf prices, saving probably a factor of 10 in the cost, which makes it feasible to do on an Australian Research Council grant. And that gives us Minerva Australis. What Minerva Australis is, is a collection of eventually six telescopes, currently four, that sit on paths around an, a beautiful observatory building we've got and feed light through fibre optic cables into a big spectrograph that can do radial velocity work. They also allow us to do photometry. We can put a camera on the side and count the amount of light coming down. But the main job is to do radial velocities, to pump light from the telescope into the spectrograph. And by having four small telescopes, if we point them all at the same star, we're getting the same amount of light, and therefore the same amount of data, as if we had one larger telescope. But the larger telescope will cost much, much more to build. But that means that we get the collecting area of a bigger telescope at an affordable price. We can do this project. But it also means that when we want to look at bright stars where we don't need to have quite as much light, we can point each telescope at a different star and observe more stars at once. The key point here is that we have a facility that we have total control over that we can use every single night of the year to observe the stars that Tess says might have planets. And that's why we built this. We're essentially working with NASA so that when Tess says, I think I've found a planet around this star, we swing our telescopes there, observe it, and we can confirm it. We can learn more about it. And it really is kind of cool that we here in Australia and we here in southeast Queensland get a piece of the NASA pie. We get to play on that biggest of stages and really contribute to this search for planets around other stars and eventually the search for other Earths. Fantastic. Uh, collaboration is the name of the game. It is. And as I say, this is a global endeavour. We are working, we're already on a number of papers of planets that were discovered by TESS, and we do this collaborating with research in South America, in Africa, in North America, in Europe, in Asia. Really is a full global endeavour, and everybody's working together to try and learn as much as we can about these things. When it's daylight here in Australia, telescopes in Chile are pointed at the same stars we're looking at and getting more data. So even though on Earth it's only dark half of the time, thanks to the distribution of observatories around the planet, we can be on sky all day, all night, every day, 24 hours a day. And that's really facilitating this kind of work, making sure that we can get the fabulous results that we're seeing. 
That is awesome. Now, a supplementary question on Minerva. Australis. There's a lot of talk currently about the impact of Elon Musk's constellation of Starlink satellites on optical instruments. I've just read a statement from the LSST that's being constructed, and they say they can mitigate against that constellation impacting on their research. Can you see the impact of up to 12,000 satellites being in the sky where they weren't before interfering with optical research? It's going to cause problems for a lot of research, and certainly my amateur astronomy side weeps at this thought. You know, I'm I'm an enthusiastic meter observer and astrophotographer, and it'll be a problem there. Fortunately, the work we're doing with Minerva Australis shouldn't be impacted too much from it, because we're going to be looking at one star at a time getting light from one star through a fibre optic cable into the camera. So even with 12,000 satellites up there, the likelihood of any one of those satellites passing across that fibre optic cable while we're doing the observation is pretty much nil. So for our kind of observations, and I must stress for our kind alone, this really isn't a problem. More widely, though, for the surveys that people are doing to look for solar system small objects, this is going to be catastrophic because you're looking for small faint specks of light on fields of view that are going to be littered with trails from satellites and stuff like that. Yes, it's manageable, but it's not an ideal situation. For people who want to go out and get beautiful photographs of the Milky Way, who want to try and photograph meteor showers, it's going to be an extra challenge. It's going to be an extra problem. All for the advance of humanity. I think there's a lot of value in using low-Earth orbit space and taking advantage of it. But I think what this is really highlighting is that there needs to be more oversight and there needs to be more discussions Something I saw somebody say on Twitter that is really cogent here is if your neighbour wants to build something unusual in their backyard, they have to put in for planning permission. Even if you cannot see the thing they're building from your property, you can still write in a complaint and you can still say your case. But when it comes to people putting things in orbit that we can see from the ground, there's no such thing there. There's no real oversight. And I can understand why that is, and we do need to exploit that space. There's also the concern that as we put more and more stuff up there, that space becomes less safe because you can get collisions, you can get more debris generated, and you run the risk of rendering that space unusable eventually, unless we manage what's up there carefully. So I'm less stressed and less panicked about the Elon Musk constellation than a lot of other astronomers are. I'm not awfully happy about it, I've got to admit, but I don't think it's quite panic sessions yet, but I think it's starting a discussion that's very important and should probably have been had years ago. And part of the problem is that it isn't just Elon looking at putting things up there. If he gets his 12,000 satellites up there, that'll be a problem. But there are other companies, such as an incredibly famous online book-selling store, that are looking at doing the same kind of thing. And if they put 10,000 up as well and someone else puts 5,000 up, how do you manage this? How do you avoid it becoming a major, major problem? I think that's what we need to look at. I also know that there have been problems generated for astronomers because of speaking out about this. I know some of the people I follow on Twitter, some of my colleagues, spoke quite eloquently about this and eventually had to turn their accounts private or even delete their social media because of the abuse they got online from challenging the fabulous ideas of Elon. So there's a lot of interesting social interaction going on around this in terms of what people value, in terms of people's ideas of the importance of the night sky to our culture versus people's ideas of the importance of technological development for our culture. There's a lot of really interesting discussion to have, but fortunately for us, with our Minerva Australis facility, 
it's not going to directly impact us. With the caveat that if something goes catastrophically wrong and Tess gets knocked out of the sky, then we'd have a problem. But fortunately, Tess is on a very different orbit to this stuff, so that shouldn't be an issue. Exactly. Thanks, Jonty. And in two weeks, we'll continue with part three, exobiology, with Professor Jonty Horner. So now we've got what's up, Doc, but this time without the Doc bit. So in Ian's absence... We'll now have a look at what's up in the sky for the next two weeks. Two days ago, on the 16th, we just had a full moon with an entire lunar eclipse visible from most of Africa, the Middle East and Western India. South America saw the later stages of the eclipse after moonrise and Australia and Southeast Asia saw the eclipse just before sunset. None of the eclipse was visible from Europe or North America. For those with backyard telescopes, tomorrow, on Friday, July 19, the dwarf planet Ceres will complete a retrograde loop that began in April and resumes its regular eastward orbital motion through the background stars. It's magnitude 8 in the southern evening sky in Libra, for those in the northern hemisphere. For us southerners, it's northeast. And if you draw a line from Saturn to Jupiter, Ceres will be about a third of that distance again to the left of Jupiter. Also, for northern observers with telescopes, in the eastern half of North America, you can watch Io's shadow transit Jupiter on Saturday, July 20, from 8.54 to 11.06pm EDT. Again in the Northern Hemisphere, in the southeastern pre-dawn sky on Thursday, July 25, the waning crescent moon will be positioned five degrees below that south of the blue-green planet Uranus. Both objects will fit your binoculars field of view, so to increase your chance of seeing Uranus, look for the magnitude 5.8 planet while keeping the brighter moon just outside of your binoculars field. For those in the southern hemisphere, also watch for Uranus near the moon on the 26th. For both north and south, best viewing of your night skies before moonrise and after moonset, and any time during a new moon. And Jupiter and Saturn still dominate the eastern skies after sunset. So from this Saturday, the 20th, the Apollo 11 anniversary, the moon is rising later and later each night. So it's a good time to step outside in the early evening to catch Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus too, if you have a decent squintoscope. For southern hemisphere observers, three relatively minor meteor showers come together to provide an excellent midwinter show for us. This year, the moon is perfectly placed to allow their observation. These three showers are Southern Delta Aquariates, the Alpha Capricorniates and the Pisces Austronids favour observers in the Southern Hemisphere, although they can also be observed from Northern Latitudes. Regardless of your location, the best rates for these showers 
are seen in the hours after midnight. Reasonable rates begin to be visible for Southern Hemisphere observers as early as 10pm local time from about now on. The source of the Delta Aquarius is thought to be 96P Macholtz Comet, which was part of the ancient stream of Kruitz sun-grazing comets. The Delta Aquarius meteors are due to peak on the night of the 28th and 29th of July, but it's a broad peak. The shower is active for about five weeks, from the 12th of July through to the 23rd of August, and they can vary in their hourly rate each year between 10 to 20 meteors per hour. That's about one every three minutes, if you're lucky. In 2019, the Delta Aquarius are expected to have a good hourly rate. The Delta Aquarius is located in the constellation of Aquarius, of course, and it can be viewable from 8pm on the 28th, but it's probably best to wait until around 3am on the 30th. And with a 1% crescent moon setting in the west on the 31st of July, that will be a perfect time to get up early and spot some of the Delta Aquarius. Now, we'll have Ian back for our next episode, so in the meantime, you can use his notes on his Astroblog website. Just search for Astroblog, and he comes up as number one in most search engines. And now, we cross for the news. And as always, there's lots happening. Now, for us at Astrophys, and I'm sure for many others... This has been the big news item since our last episode. This is by science reporter Susanna Lyons for ABC Science. Astronomers pinpoint the origin of the elusive FRB, the fast radio burst, and they've pinpointed it to a distant galaxy. The origin of powerful one-off flashes of energy from intergalactic space has puzzled astronomers for more than a decade, and we have reported on it in quite a few episodes of Astrophys. Now, for the first time, they've pinpointed the location of one of these bursts to a galaxy 3.6 billion light-years away. The burst, known as a FRB, only lasts for 1.3 milliseconds, but it was so powerful that it emitted as much energy as the Sun would in 80 years. The Australian-led research team were not only able to identify which galaxy the burst came from, but tracked the signal to its precise location 13,000 light-years from the galaxy's centre. They reported in the journal Science. That sort of precision is equivalent to standing on the moon, looking down on the Earth, and you know not only the city the signal came from, but also the suburb and even the city block, said lead author and astronomer Keith Bannister of the CSIRO. FRBs were first discovered in 2007 using data from CSIRO's Parkes Telescope and are one of radio astronomy's biggest mysteries. We just don't understand what kind of object in the universe can make radio waves 
that only last for a millisecond, but are so bright because we think they come from literally halfway across the universe, Dr. Bannister said. The second reason that they're really interesting is that when a FRB goes off, as it travels towards the Earth, it actually picks up a lot of information about the gas that it's travelling through on its way. And that gas between galaxies, also known as the intergalactic medium, is very difficult for us to see or measure in any other way. Although astronomers predict that 2,000 FRBs happen across the sky every day, we'd only detected 85 of them until this latest discovery. Most of those 85 have been one-off bursts, although two have sent out repeat bursts from the same patch of sky from time to time. This has made it possible for astronomers to detect the location of one of these repeaters, said study co-author and astronomer Adam Della of Swinburne University. Once you know approximately where it is, you know where to look, Dr. Della said, but he said tracking down the location of the one-off bursts has proven much more challenging. If you want to catch a one-off burst, then you've really only got for as long as you can save the raw data, which in our case is a couple of seconds. So this is how they did it. The team are no strangers to spotting fast radio bursts. Last year, the team bagged a haul of 20 bursts using the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, ASCAP telescope. This telescope is located 300 kilometres northeast of Geraldton at the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory in Western Australia and uses multiple dishes spread across a six kilometre area. Now, previously, the astronomers pointed the dishes in different directions, known as fly-eye mode, to cover a large slab of sky, but this time they pointed them all in the same direction. And as the signal travels through space, it hits each of the dishes at a slightly different time, allowing the astronomers to calculate the location of the source. When the dishes are all working together, you can figure out how the wave of radiation washed over all of the different telescopes, and that tells you exactly where it came from, Dr. Della said. After they'd pinpointed the location of the burst, known as FRB 180924, Colleagues at optical telescopes around the world snapped an image of the galaxy it came from and measured how far away it was. And one of these galaxies is not like the other. While they've identified the galaxy, the result has thrown up even more questions about what actually produces these strange signals. The galaxy identified for this burst is very different from the host galaxy where the repeater burst known as FRB 121102 is located. While the repeater comes from a dwarf galaxy that is vigorously forming new stars, the new burst comes from a galaxy that is a similar size to our Milky Way and is a lot more pedestrian. We have now taken a step back and say you don't have to be an unusual galaxy to produce a fast radio burst, said astronomer Dr. Ryan Shannon from Swinburne University, a co-author on the paper. They're still very unusual, it's just 
that the environments that produce them don't have to be, Dr. Shannon said. And Dr. Bannister said the team hoped to pinpoint more of these elusive bursts. The trick is to find as many of these as we can, and that gives us a statistical idea of how much gas there is in the universe, and that would be a really exciting thing to do, he said. Locating the origin of a single burst was a big step forward in solving the mystery of what causes these bursts, said astrophysicist Tara Murphy of the University of Sydney, who was not involved in the study. Professor Murphy said the discovery discovered the power of what new telescopes like ASCAP can do. This is something we've been hoping ASCAP will be able to do, and this is the first proof that it can do it, she said. We should be able to routinely start identifying where FRBs are from. And once we've got some sample of them where we know their host galaxy, we will be able to identify what causes them. And that is the holy grail of FRB research. Well done to the teams from international partners led by the CSIRO, Swinburne University of Technology and ICRA. Our next report comes from the English version of the Roscosmos website in Russia. Spectre RG Observatory has been put into orbit. Sometimes I think they get the names for these space projects from watching old Bond movies. The Proton-M carrier rocket with the DM-03 booster and Spectre-RG Unique Space Astrophysical Observatory, was successfully launched from Launchpad N81 from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan at 15.30 Moscow time last week. The launch and the flight of the rocket went flawlessly, making it a second launch of the type in 2019. According to the launch sequence, at 17.30 Moscow time, the spacecraft separated from a DM-03 booster designed by Energia Company and the Orbital Observatory commenced its 100-day flight towards the L2 libration point of the Sun-Earth system, where it will be exploring the universe in X-ray spectrum of electromagnetic emission. The following operations are scheduled during the flight. Support, systems check, telescope adjustment, calibration and testing, test astrophysical observations. The observations are scheduled to be performed for a 6.5 years, with 4 years in scanning the sky of stars mode, and 2.5 years in pinpoint observations of the objects in the universe. We'll look forward to some great X-ray science coming from that Russian project. Next, from Andrew Parsonson, July 12. NASA celebrates the discovery of the 4,000th exoplanet. NASA has revealed that it has surpassed 4,000 identified exoplanets in June. To celebrate, the agency has created a video that tracks the agency's progress in identifying exoplanets from the first in 1992 to the 4,000th in 2019. Despite our certainty that other exoplanets likely existed in the universe, it wasn't until January 1992 that radio astronomers Alexander Walsian and Dale Frail 
made the first definitive detection of an exoplanet. Over the next 17 years, several new exoplanets were discovered, however. It wasn't until the launch of Kepler's space telescope in March 2009 that the discovery of new exoplanets became an almost daily event. The Kepler Space Telescope, named after astronomer Johann Kepler, was launched on March 7, 2009. It was expected to search the universe for Earth-sized planets orbiting other stars for three and a half years. Nine years later, the telescope was still operational. Having boosted the number of identified exoplanets from less than 400 to over 3,500. Now, Kepler's mission came to an end in 2018, and NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, TESS, took up the mantle of discovering new worlds. The video celebrating the spectacular milestone of discovering 4,000 exoplanets was created by using data from NASA's Exoplanet Archive. It combines beautiful visuals and music to chronologically map the discovery of every exoplanet. The video was created by System Sounds and published on APOD, the Astronomy Picture of the Day YouTube channel. So check out YouTube and APOD. And kudos to Andrew Parsonson and his Rocket Rundown site for that report. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!